Well, good morning. My name is Jason, I'm one of the pastors here at Community Church, and I am really glad that each and every one of you is here this morning. I've got a question for you as we start off this morning. How have you complained this week? How have you grumbled this week? I've got my Oscar the Grouch socks on today, just so you know, as a reminder. And, and even more than that, how have you grumbled against God this week? Is there a part of you that says, God, this just isn't fair? Have you been there this week? Maybe you haven't said that out loud, but is there something deep inside of you that is grumbling that says, this isn't fair? That's the space we're going to enter into this morning as we dive into one of Jesus' parables. Now, as we learned last week, parables are more than simply stories that make everything nice and neat and clean. Parables in actuality, as we talked about last week, make us do the work that allows Jesus to work in us and through us. Again, parables make us do the work that allows Jesus to work in us and through us. Do you believe that to be true this morning? And are you open to receive what God has for you this morning? Last week we talked about different conditions of the heart, that some have shallow hearts and some have hard hearts and some have divided hearts. Jesus is interested in your heart in my heart, in our hearts, at the core of who we are. So we're going to look at a parable this morning that gets us into that space. I invite you to turn or turn on uh, to Matthew 20, verse 1. A little bit of background, a little bit of context for this particular Parable, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to go to the cross. And he has some teaching he's going to do to his disciples. He's going to talk to them in parables. This particular teaching comes on the heels of Jesus' conversation with the rich young ruler. If you know the story, great. If you don't, I'm super glad you're here. Let me give you that background. So uh, a, a guy comes up to Jesus and said, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And they, they start getting into a conversation about the commandments and uh, he says, well, which one? And, well, you know, have you murdered and stealed and stolen and, and done all these things? And, and the young man says, you know, I, hey, I've done all these things. I have done all these things. 
And Jesus says, well, go and sell all your possessions. He cuts at the heart of what this young man was really about. And that's a great story in and of itself, but I want you to just be thinking about that conversation. And then uh, Jesus is debriefing with his disciples, and he said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter into heaven. And then the question becomes, who then can be saved? Well, Peter hears this. And then he's got a question for Jesus, and I want you to see this. He says, uh, hey, we've left everything for you, Jesus. What's in it for us? We've sacrificed. We've done these things. What's in it for us? Jesus is going to respond, and, and he'll, he'll give us this teaching and he'll say hey you're going to have great responsibility and there's going to be a uh, a new kingdom and you're going to have positions of authority but he says many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first and that's the setup for the parable now after the parable a little bit farther along the mother of James and John maybe the first helicopter parent goes up to Jesus and says uh hey are my boys going to be at your right and your left hand? Jesus is going to have words to say about that too. But it's a question of authority. It's a question of fairness. It's a question of responsibility. And Jesus is going to tell them this parable. Verse 1, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Now, back in the day, it's not a 9 to 5 workday. It's a 6A to 6P workday. That's the shift. It's a 12-hour shift. The grapes are ready. There's urgency. Let's go harvest. We need workers. A denarius is the day, a day's pay. That's what it is. Verse 3, about 9 in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. First group, 6 a.m., second group, 9 o'clock. He went out again about noon and about 3 in the afternoon. And did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, and do the math, how many hours of work are left in the day? One hour, right? About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they asked. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Now pause. Jesus is a great storyteller. He's going to build this tension. 
what would you think would happen? What would be the reasonable thing to do? How many of you have ever worked for an hourly wage? You get paid by the hour. That's the way things work. Verse 9. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. It's a day's pay. How many hours did they work? One. It's a pretty good deal. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. Now, how would you respond if you were in those first worker's shoes? How would you really respond? Would you say, oh, what a blessing for them. I am happy, so happy for them that their hourly rate is 12 times what I got. i no problem. I have no problem with that. What would, what would well up inside you? What would be the first thing? Would you say, that's not fair? Do you have to teach a kid to say that's not fair? It just kind of happens, doesn't it? I was reminded... Um, when I was a little kid, and I'm, I'm playing like Bantam football and all that, and it was trophy day, award ceremony day, trophy day. Well, everything was great. Everybody got their trophies, and they had, they had a cover over the championship trophies, a cover over them. And then when they, the team that won the championship came up to receive their trophies, and they unveiled the trophies, they were only half an inch bigger than everybody else's trophies. Can you picture this scene? Now, what do you think the response of everybody was? Well, the kids were a little bit upset, but you know who was the most upset? The parents! You're robbing these poor children? Don't you know they won the fourth grade championship? I mean, this is, you know, this is a big deal. They deserve a bigger trophy. So what did the parents go out and do? They bought them bigger trophies. We don't have to use our imagination much to reveal this attitude. Verse 13, back to the parable. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. So what does God have for you, for us today? I believe it's in these questions that God wants to till the soil of our hearts, that he wants to do work in us, that, he, that something needs to come out this morning. So the first question, don't I have the right to do 
what I want with my own money. Now, we won't go into every minute detail and try to interpret everything about the parable. I don't think that's really the intent, but we know that the landowner in the parable represents God. Represents God. So the question I would ask you is, how do you see the authority of God? How do you see the authority of God? Jesus is talking about the kingdom. He wants to reveal something about the kingdom of God. And if we're going to talk about the kingdom, we need to talk about the king. Now, as we've talked about in our, really, this whole year, as we focused on the hope of Jesus and we've talked about the kingdom, God's kingdom is where God gets what God wants. Some theologians say it's the range of his effective will. Which may raise the question in your mind, all right, if God is truly has authority, why does the world look the way it does? And why does it look the way it does in my life, in your life, in our life? What's the, what's the question? If God's all-powerful, couldn't he get what he wants whenever he wants? Of course. But the God of the Bible operates differently than what I might do if I were in charge. He's a personal God who desires to be in relationship with his creation. Part of what God desires is for us to follow him. He wants that desire. It's not a coercive deal here. Can God intervene? Of course he can. We can go back in specific places where we can go back to the flood. We can go back to situations where God used his direct power to intervene. But his regular way to do that seems to be something different from that. Somehow he works in us to work through us. Let me take you to 2 Peter 3 for just a moment, give you an illustration of this. The church is being persecuted. They've been, they've been scattered, and you know, this is Peter. He's, he's grown up. He's, he's learned a few things. God has the power. God has the authority. He will bring about a new heaven and a new earth. 2 Peter 3, 8 says this, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Part of it, the core of who God is, is this desire, this love, Nature of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect unity, perfect relationship, perfect other-centeredness. We are invited into that 
experience. So there's a tension here. God could get whatever God wants, but in some way, in the nature of who he is, we are invited into that participation. I want you to consider that this morning. Consider the authority of God and how that authority works. But there's a second question. Are you envious because I am generous? Are you envious because I am generous? If you look at the Greek in that or you you look at the old King James, is your eye evil because I am good? There's a word picture here that says there's a perspective that is different. Are you envious because I am generous? So the question that raises in my mind and in ours this morning is, what is your attitude towards the generosity of God? What is your attitude towards the generosity of God? We look at the story. God is the owner of the vineyard. The vineyard is the kingdom. Some start at six, some at noon, some at three, some at five. They all get paid the same. Does the owner know how long the workers have toiled in the garden? Or not in the garden, but in, yeah, in the vineyard. Of course he does. He knows their pain. He knows what they've gone through. Does he know that the last group only worked an hour? Of course. Does the owner pay, pay the workers who work the full shift what he promised? Yes. Is he unfair to them? No. He's better than fair. It's the owner's prerogative to pay others more per hour for their work. It's the owner's prerogative to pay those who were hired last first. It's the owner's prerogative to pay them more than what they deserve, according to market value. It's the owner's prerogative to be generous. It's his prerogative. This parable highlights the generosity of God. Is there other biblical data that would reveal the generosity of God? It's all throughout the Bible. From God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to all the promises of the glorious riches that we have in Christ. We did a whole series on generous rhythms in seeing the generosity of God. We sung this morning about a grace so glorious. Just double-click on that for just a moment. Paul lays this out in Romans for us. Paul tells us that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Tells us that the wages of sin is death, that while, we're, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, yes, and yes. If you've been in church for a minute, you know that story. You may know those verses. If you're brand new to this whole thing, it's a great opportunity today to say, I want to take a step of faith. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I don't have it all figured out, but I want to take a step towards 
a generous God who can forgive me and give me new life. We have various doctrines that we talk about grace through. We do communion every Sunday to remind us of that grace. But here's what I want to challenge us with today. We can have all of our theology buttoned up. We can sing the songs. We can recite the creed. We can do those things and miss out on God's generosity towards us in the everyday. Let me take you to James 1.16 real quick. James says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Every good gift is from above. We're reminded of God's generosity towards us on a daily basis basis, all the little things. And as we hear that grace, 1 Peter 4.10 says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So we see the grace, we experience it. And then God uses us as part of that whole grace distribution system to share with others. In our Caring for the Vulnerable class, started this past Wednesday, we're trying to to learn how we can be helpful, how we can show grace, how we can be part of that system of sharing the hope of Jesus with those who are really struggling. Anybody know anybody really struggling right now? Maybe that's you today. But as followers of Jesus, we're part of that system. But there's a problem in the parable. There's grumbling. There's complaining. There's envy. So how do you see the gift of God's generosity this morning? What do you do with your grumbles? What's underneath the grumbling? I want to suggest this morning that our grumbles reveal something. Our grumbles about what others get from God reveal what we still don't get about God. Our grumbles about what others get reveals what we still don't get about God. Paul says this in Philippians 2. He just gives this wonderful discussion of Jesus. He says, your attitude should be that as Jesus, who being very in nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he made himself nothing, and he took on the very nature of a servant, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross, and that Jesus would be exalted Wonderful truths about the cross. And then he says this, Therefore, my dear friends, verse 12, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without, complaint, without grumbling or arguing. Because we see God so clearly that that's our response. The problem, though, sometimes we get stuck in a cycle. A transactional cycle of performance and comparison. Those workers didn't have a problem with the wage until what? They started comparing with one another. We can get in this cycle of comparison where we're never content, where we can even resent the work of others. The Apostle Paul, and I won't take you through the whole passage, but there's this wonderful scene in, um, in Philippians 3 following this where he's, he's emphasizing grace and he's emphasizing that it's not the law, it's not circumcision. And he says, you know, hey, here's my resume. I'm, you know, I'm a Pharisee. I've got this great record. I'm, I'm, I've kept the law. I have all this. But all these things are rubbish. All these things are garbage compared to his relationship with Jesus. He says, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So if you want to do some comparison, Paul says, look, let's do a real comparison here. So how do you respond to that question about the generosity of God? Let me give us an action plan this week. I don't know about you, but sometimes I need to change my thinking. I need to change my perspective. I want you to consider this. The first step, identify your grumbling. Identify your grumbling. Where is it that you've grumbled this week? Again, not just what you've said out loud, but where in your heart have you said, you know what, it's really hard for me to rejoice in that other person's success, maybe? Maybe this doesn't seem fair. Any bad feeling when someone else experiences something good. Maybe as Matt led us through that that prayer time, there was something that came up. Maybe there's something in this passage that comes up. Here's what came up for me this week. I battled some real discouragement this week as I looked around and I saw empty seats in the worship center and I, 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 can, look at, I can look at all the metrics sometimes. I can look at numbers and I can get discouraged and I can look inward and I can start grumbling to God and I can say, why, you know, why, why, why aren't there more people here? Why, you know, we got an old building and this needs fixed and that needs fixed and why God, why God, why God? And then maybe I hear something about another church in town and they've got a nice new building and people are coming and there's excitement there. Grumble. I did a little grumbling. 
I confess that to you. I did some grumbling. There was probably a hint of envy in some of that. So what do you do then? Well, just stuff it. Just pretend like it's not there. Or just say, you know what, I shouldn't feel that way, and move on. That's never really worked for me. And then it just spirals again. Well, it's one more way I'm inadequate. (laughs) So what's the next step? So I want to identify that. I need to see it for what it is. The second step is to give that to Jesus, to share your feelings with Jesus and somebody you trust. To to, to give that, can Jesus handle your, your grumbling and complaining? If you don't think so, read the book of Psalms. So I pray, Jesus, this is, this is how I feel. I'm discouraged about this. And I shared with somebody whom I really trust. Talked, had some conversations, got that out, talked about it. Not looking for somebody to give me advice and correct, you know, but just, just, just sharing that. Just sharing that. And then the third step is to meditate on the generosity of God. Now, you can do that in, a, in some really deep spiritual ways, which are great. Okay. Psalm 63, a great passage if you, want, uh, if you want a psalm to focus on. Somebody who's here who's gone through a hard time memorized that psalm, and she's going to say amen right now. Because that's a psalm that can be helpful to get your mind reoriented around God. But here's what I did. Had my granddaughter with me on Friday, and we just put on Spotify, we, we put on some worship music. And we were worshiping together. Now, she's got a broken leg, cutest thing in the world, so she's sitting on the ground. But we're being real silly, and we're singing worship songs. And I'm reminded, I've, I've got a, there was one of the songs, and it reminded me of working kids camp back in the day, and it just... My mind was flooded with wonderful memories of God working. The great hymn, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. We sang that. Some other things, just, just being silly, lighthearted, having some joy, but worshiping God. It's a wonderful time. It's a wonderful time. It encouraged my heart. And then finally, replace your envy with encouragement. Whatever it is, whatever your grumbles are, whatever your envy may be, how do we take that? And then we say, all right, you know, whoever it is that I may be grumbling against or whoever I may envy, how can I encourage them this week? I've still got work to do on that one. I'm in process with that. But that's my step. So what about you today? Where is it that you grumble? What is that grumbling revealing about your heart? And then what action can you take in response? This time of reflection appropriately leads us to the table. It leads us to the communion table. 
I would invite you to go ahead and hold the elements in your hand. You don't need to open them yet. But whatever it is you've brought this into this place this week, and we've all got something, open your eyes and just look around. Everybody in here has got a different story. Everybody's got a different level of understanding, different background, different hurts, different grumbles. But here's what we do when we come to the table together. We bring those to Jesus together. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. He said, the cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? That Greek word there is koinonia. It's it's communion. It's fellowship. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Friends, this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, no matter how high your list of grumbles may be, no matter what your feelings towards God may be right here in this moment, you've, put your, you've taken that step of faith and trust. And you said, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. If you've done that, you're, you're part of the family. You're part of the family. And as a, as a family, we come to the table together. And we do remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. He took the bread. And I would invite you now, we got fancy new communion cups. It's on one side. Take that, take that bread, hold it in your hand. And we remember that after Jesus broke the bread and after he gave thanks he gave it to his disciples and he said take eat this is my body broken for you may we now receive together and in the same way Jesus took the cup and we take the cup Jesus says this cup is represents my blood the blood of the new covenant blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. So just as we receive the bread, may we now receive the cup together. Let us pray. Father, as we come to you this morning, in these moments, we're thankful for your grace. We're thankful for your generosity. We're thankful that it's not just some abstract principle, but it's real that you really walked this earth, Jesus, and you really died and you really rose. And because you live, we can live too. So Holy Spirit, do the work that only you can in our hearts in this moment. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.